Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 19, 1 through 10. This is found on page 878 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just so uh, glad that you're here with us this morning and uh, worshiping with us today. And I just want to say, whether you've been with us for a long time or this is your very first time with us this Sunday, again, we're so glad that you're here, and I'm just so proud to be your pastor. This is an incredible congregation, and uh, it's such a joy to be able to serve uh, here as your pastor. And before we dive into our passage here in the Gospel of Luke, I want to uh, just briefly pray for us uh, as we always do as we begin, but particularly this Sunday. I mean, for Christ Community's 30-year history, we've had a, a commitment to um, seeking um, justice for those uh, who are yet un, unborn and, uh, and to uh, seek that. And so this week is the, the 20th, uh, or the, is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision. It was on the 22nd of this past week. And so each uh, January, we've highlighted this as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so I just love to, to join with us in a prayerful spirit of lament and intercession this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we are freshly reminded that you have made all human beings in your image and in your likeness, and that they are the crown of your brilliant creation. And that each one of us, every human being, possesses unimaginable worth and dignity simply because you have, have made them and loved them. And with the psalmist, we praise you for each one of us who has been made in our mother's womb fearfully and wonderfully. As the prophet Jeremiah has reminded us that, that before we were born, you knew us and you loved us, that you have sovereignly numbered our days, that they are written in your book. Wonderful are your works and your ways, and our souls know them well. Lord, receive our praise. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow our hearts before you in a spirit of contrition and repentance, seeking mercy and forgiveness, because as a people we have not honored the sanctity of every born and unborn human life. As a nation, we continue to choose a willful blindness in the legalized killing of unborn. It's justified by the idolatrous altar of individual choice and autonomy. Father, awaken in us and each one of our fellow citizens uh, this, this ongoing nature of this crisis. And we pray also, Lord, for all of those who have been ravaged by abortion, that you would bring healing and hope, that they would know 
that they are deeply loved by Jesus and welcomed into his family. You are there to forgive and to heal and restore. We pray that you would guide each one of us in what role we might play in protecting the unborn, turning the tide of this injustice in our land. We, we pray for advice and aid and many other organizations in our city and around the world who seek to come alongside men and women facing uh, what feels like an impossible choice of continuing a pregnancy or not and serving them in those ways. We also pray for those who are serving in courts and in government seeking to provide protection for the unborn. Lord, have mercy on us and hear our prayers. Lord, we also ask that you would awaken our minds and hearts to other evil and injustice on human dignity in our, in our land. Father, for persecuted Christians around the world, our brothers and sisters who are facing imprisonment, torture, and even death. Lord, for we pray for the ending of violence on our streets in Kansas City, the, the lives that are taken by murder for those who are trapped in human trafficking in our city and around our country, um, for our many elderly brothers and sisters who often face abuse at the hands of those who are to give them care for those also who are in many cases due to COVID-19 suffering and even dying in other, almost utter isolation. Lord, have mercy and hear our prayer. Compel us as we ought to seek justice and true neighborly love, that we would follow the prophet Micah in doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with our God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Well, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves now here in Luke chapter 19. And as we begin, I just want to ask a question of you, and that is to think about who gets to come over to your house? Who gets to come to your house? Right? That's always a question we sort of had some sort of answer to, right? Like who gets to come over, how often, when, but then you enter into this COVID reality and that question of who gets to come over to your house takes on a whole new set of complications, right? Who's kind of in our quarantine bubble? Who, who we agreed to see? And especially once the weather has turned from being nice where everyone could just spread out in the backyard to now we're actually like crammed together in the living room. Who gets to come over to our house? And the answer to that question reveals a lot about us. Not necessarily good or bad. It just, it just tells something about who we are, who we're connected to, who our friends are, who our family, who do we welcome into our home? Who gets to come over to our house? And here in Luke chapter 19, we want to look at this passage where someone has an unexpected visitor come to their house and how it changes then the entire trajectory of his life when this person comes to his house. Like I mentioned, we are um, in this series in the Gospel of Luke, and as we look at this passage in Luke 19, I just want to highlight for us, what's at, what's at stake in this passage for us as we listen this morning? And it's really key to recognize, if, if we miss what Jesus is doing here in this passage, and what this means for us, we actually are going to miss out on the transforming power of Jesus' grace and love and forgiveness that brings joy into our community. That's what's at stake this morning. Not just, just our own happiness, but actually the joy of our community as we are transformed by Jesus. And so, again, in a lot of ways, that's what we've been looking at all throughout the Gospel of Luke in this uh, series. We've been calling it Rediscovering the Kingdom. We're just asking the question, what, what is the gospel that Jesus preached? What is the kingdom that he is bringing? This language of the kingdom comes up so many times in Luke and on the lips of Jesus saying, this is what I'm coming to do in the world, is bringing God's kingdom 
to earth. What does that mean? And last week we talked about a one kind of shorthand definition of what the kingdom of God is, is it's the place where what God wants done gets done. That's one way you could talk about the kingdom. Another way to talk about the kingdom is just God's rule, his authority over every square inch of our lives as well as of the whole world. Um, And so when you step into Jesus' kingdom, when he becomes your king, he gets the keys to everything in your life. There are no locked doors anymore. There is no password that he doesn't know that he can't open up and, and speak into your life. When you come into God's kingdom, there's, not, there's no longer like a private browsing mode or an incognito mode where you can sort of just have these kind of things that are separate that don't get impacted by Jesus' rule and reign in my life. It's comprehensive. It's every square inch. Everything changes when you encounter the king. And that's what I want you to take away from this morning. If there's one thing that you take away from our message this morning, I hope it's this, is that no one is the same when the king comes over. And no one is the same when the king comes over. So as we look together at Luke 19, uh, I want to ask, ask, kind of organize our time around two big questions. And the first is, whose house does the king go to? Whose house does the king go to? And then secondly, what happens when the king comes to your house? What happens when the king comes to your house? So I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Luke 19 in one of the pew Bibles, or if you brought a Bible, or just open up your phone, and you can just Google Luke 19, and I'm sure uh, a website will pull that up for you. Again, the Bible is divided up into two big chunks, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, The Old Testament is is kind of how God is working through this family of Abraham to bring about the blessing and redemption of the whole world, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those problems. The true Son of Israel come. And so that's what the New Testament focuses on. There's four sort of theological biographies of Jesus in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so if you turn there, don't ever be afraid to just look at table contents as well, but you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then uh, just find your way to chapter 19. And in uh, chapter 19 of Luke, Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. We've been looking at this now for the last several weeks as we've looked at 18, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crowned as king but in a way that no one expects, and we'll see that in coming weeks. But he's headed to Jerusalem, and on his way there, he's passing through the city of Jericho. And last week we saw as he's on the outskirts of Jericho, he encounters this this blind man who cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus takes this blind man, and, and he heals him. And there's this miraculous moment outside of Jericho, but the sense is that Jesus is passing through Jericho. He's not planning on staying there. He's certainly not planning on staying the night. He is resolute in his journey to Jerusalem. But again, he's just healed this blind man. Uh, There's a crowd of people following around. They want to be there with him, and Jesus is going to encounter in Jericho another person who's just as kind of an outsider as the blind man, but for a whole different set of reasons. And again, the people in Jericho, they would have been disappointed that Jesus is not staying there. Again, at this point in his, his life and his career, he's well known. He's, uh, the, the people love him. I mean, they're certainly enemies of his, but many people love him. And for Jesus to have stayed the night in Jerusalem would have been this great honor for the city. Uh, and that's a big deal in kind of an honor and a shame culture. We don't have as much of that. But you can imagine, right? Like, let's say you're, you know, Patrick Mahomes happens to be driving through your neighborhood stops, knocks on the door, asks, hey, can I eat lunch with you or dinner with your family today? 
And that'd be a huge honor, right? You would talk about that story for years. It'd be like your whole neighborhood, man, like he stayed with us. Like he, he stopped and ate dinner at our house. So we have some kind of sense of that. So you get this feel of disappointment. Like, oh man, like Jesus is not going to stay. He's, he's passing on through. But again, there's this huge crowd. Everybody wants to see him, including Zacchaeus. Including Zacchaeus. Now, when Luke introduces us to Zacchaeus, he tells us three things about him. The first thing he says is that he's a tax collector, a chief tax collector, in fact. Second thing he tells us that he is rich. And then the third thing he tells us is that he's short. So this is what we know about Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, he's rich, and he's short. Now, saying that he was a tax collector and also that he was rich, that's, that's a little redundant. It'd be like saying to your friend, like, hey, do you see that guy over there? Yeah, he's, he's an NFL quarterback. And guess what? He's also rich. <laughs> it's like, no, well, of course, if you're a pro football player, being rich comes with the territory, right? In the same kind of way, a tax collector, to be a tax collector was to be rich. And so the fact that Luke adds that description, not only is he a tax collector and these rich, it's like, this guy is really rich. He's really wealthy. And here's the thing, though. Normally, a person of wealth would have been a person of status in that community. But because of how Zacchaeus has gotten his wealth, he's actually despised. Because as a tax collector, now he's an Israelite, he's, he's a Jew, but he is collaborating with the Romans, the occupying enemy force, and he's actively participating in taking money from his own people and funneling it to Rome. Because the way the tax collection system worked, I mean, they didn't have zip codes back then, obviously, but, you know, whatever they defined the region, they said, this zip code, the Romans need $10,000 of taxes. And the tax collector would actually prepay that amount to the Roman government. So they would pay that up front. Rome gets their money, they're good. And then the tax collector throughout the rest of the time now goes to the people who live in that area and collects the taxes from them, and they earn a commission off that. And there was some rules in place to sort of govern the commissions and that kind of thing. But here's the deal. The assessment of the value of property was very subjective. And so there was lots of room for manipulation and for tax collectors to get very wealthy by extorting or overcharging people to earn these taxes. But that's not all. In fact, rabbis at this time would say a tax collector's house is unclean, not just because they're kind of collaborating with Rome, but also because of how they typically got the capital to be able to pay Rome up front, right? So this is a big chunk of money they have to give to Rome at the beginning of this time. Where do they get that cash at the beginning? Well, typically, the practice was that a lot of these tax collectors had land that they owned that they charged exorbitant interest on to the people who, who lived on it. That's how they got the initial capital to pay. And there's laws in the Old Testament about usury against charging excessive interest to fellow Israelites. And so because of this, tax collectors were seen as unclean. It's kind of this double thing that they were despised. They're collecting taxes. They're charging interest on, on people. Suffice to say, Zacchaeus is not a popular person in Jericho. But he can't wait to see Jesus. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't. He can't. Verses 3 and 4, take a look at this. And he was seeking to see Jesus, seeking who's seeking, uh, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, 
Jesus, he's going to have trouble seeing Jesus for, for two reasons. One, obviously he's short, he can't see above the crowd. Another reason, though, is he's hated, right? So not only can he not see above the crowd, but normally a person of wealth and status, the crowd would make way for them. They would kind of, the crowd would part, they would get to come right up to the front, but not Zacchaeus. He is hated and despised. And some people even kind of imagine, actually, Zacchaeus as this short, despised, hated person wading into a throng of people who hate him was actually maybe a little bit of a death wish, could be right? like someone's, oh, it's Zacchaeus. There's a huge crowd of people. He's short. No one's going to see him. Maybe I have a little accident with my dagger, and nobody finds him till the crowd clears. But Zacchaeus, he's undeterred. He wants to see who Jesus is. Maybe he's heard something about him. We don't, we don't know. He wants to see who Jesus is, and so he does two things that were not done by people like Zacchaeus in this time and place. One, he runs, and maybe the sense is he's running kind of through the back streets, so he's kind of avoiding the crowds, but he runs, and then he climbs a tree, right? Dignified, wealthy men in the first century did not run and climb trees. I mean, even today, right? Can you imagine like the, the mayor of New York City sprinting down a Manhattan street and then darting into Central Park and climbing a tree in a $3,000 suit? I mean, like, this doesn't happen, right? This is not what is done, but he wants to see Jesus, and so then we're told here that he climbs into a sycamore fig tree. Now, why does Luke give us that detail? You're just really into botany. I want to tell you the kind of tree it was. Maybe, I mean, Luke was a, a doctor, maybe he was just into plants. But I think there's two reasons he gives us that detail. One is sycamore figs have low branches. Remember, Zacchaeus is short. I mean, the branches start six, seven feet up on the tree trunk. He doesn't have hope of climbing it. So the branches are low, but also the leaves are dense. It gives him a way where he can climb up in the street and he can be hidden. He can see without being seen. He can hide from the crowd who hates him and get a glimpse of Jesus without being seen himself. So here he is hiding in a tree, a tree with fig leaves no less, as God in human form comes walking by. Now, if you think back to Genesis chapter 3, there's another moment in the Bible when God is walking somewhere and people are covering themselves, hiding with fig leaves. It's another sermon for another time, but you see the echoes of Genesis here. And so Zacchaeus is there hiding out in this tree, waiting for Jesus, trying to get a glimpse of him. But friends, when Jesus is looking for you, you can't hide. When Jesus is looking for you, you cannot hide. And so then we get to verse 5. Take a look here. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Hurry and come down, he says. Now, what Jesus says here is stunning because crowd's moving along. They don't know Zacchaeus is up there. Jesus stops. He looks up in the tree. All of a sudden, the crowd looks up. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, the crowd is looking up, seeing this guy, this guy that they all hate. This is finally maybe their opportunity. They can't, they can't yell at him in the tax booth, but here he has, a, you know, there's this faceless crowd. They can, they can just let him have it, insult him, tell him what they always thought of him, and they would expect Jesus as someone right. Zacchaeus is an oppressor, and Jesus is one who has come to set liberty to the captives, to proclaim good news to the poor. What is Jesus going to say to Zacchaeus in this moment? 
And I love what Kenneth Bailey points out. This is what they would have expected Jesus to say. Zacchaeus, you are a collaborator. You are an oppressor of these good people. You have drained the economic lifeblood of your people and given it to the imperialists. You have betrayed your country and your God. I think there's more on that slide if you can give me the next piece. Yeah, the community hated, is hated of, is, of you is justified. Zacchaeus, you've got to quit, repent, journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, return to Jericho, apply yourself to keeping the law. And if you are willing to do these things on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your newly purified home and offer my congratulations. That's what this crowd expects someone who is casting themselves as the king, as the Messiah, the the one who is coming to, to set at liberty the captives, to proclaim good news to the poor, to say to someone like Zacchaeus. But Jesus isn't a normal king, and his isn't a normal kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. And so what does Zacchaeus actually get told? What does Jesus actually say to him in this moment? Verse 5 again, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. I must stay at your house. And this is, this is incredible. Because what Jesus does in that moment, again, this is an honor and a shame society. Zacchaeus is the utter outcast. He's hated by this crowd. And in that moment, Jesus, by inviting him to come down and say, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus, Jesus takes all of his honor and he's giving that to Zacchaeus. And he actually takes on himself the shame and hostility of the crowd. He kind of absorbs that. Kind of restoring Zacchaeus in a way, even in this act. And this is an act of costly love to Jesus, for Jesus to Zacchaeus. Because in doing this, Jesus is potentially lowering his status and he's, he's giving away his honor to Zacchaeus. I love how Bailey puts this. He says it this way. He says, Jesus neither endorses the oppression nor ostracizes the oppressor. Instead, he loves him. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, Zacchaeus, everything you're doing is great. No, no worries, bud. But he doesn't ostracize him either. Instead, he loves him said he loves him. And, and let me just pause here. I just want to stop and before we go any further in this and just, just meditate on this, this point for a moment. That Jesus is looking for you more than you are looking for him. Jesus is looking for you more than you are looking for him. Do you notice, like, we don't know, I mean, there's no sense that he's met Zacchaeus before, that he knows Zacchaeus from a previous encounter, and yet, when he comes to the place, not only does he know where Zacchaeus is hiding in the tree, he looks up at him and calls him by name. He knows Zacchaeus' name. He knows Zacchaeus' story. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows your pain. He knows your shame, your disappointments, your hurts, the places where you've been betrayed, the places where you've you've messed up, your regrets. He knows it all. He is looking for you way more than you are looking for him. And when he encounters Zacchaeus, what does he say? He says, hurry. 
He says, hurry. This is the only time where Jesus is going to tell you to hurry. It's going to, the only time Jesus tells you to hurry is when he's calling you to hurry out of your hiding to be found by him. You know, the word hurry is actually only used one other time in the Gospel of Luke, it's, and it's back in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and it's when the shepherds hurry to see Jesus on the night that he's born. In most every other aspect of your life, Jesus is going to call you to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Accept your hurry to come out of hiding, to be found by him. Because Jesus wants to be with you even more than you want to be with him. In fact, he wants to be with Zacchaeus so much, he's willing to go into the house of someone who is unclean, the house of a sinner. Because you got to think, remember on the timeline of this, what's about to happen? He's going to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So you have this person who's a Messiah-like figure. The Passover is just days away, and now he's making himself ceremonially unclean. But friends, Jesus doesn't get made unclean. He actually steps into unclean places and makes them clean. He wants to be with Zacchaeus even more than Zacchaeus wants to be with him, and the same is true of you. Zacchaeus just wants to see who Jesus is. Jesus says, I'm coming to stay with you at your house, and there is great joy as a result. Look at verses 6 and 7. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully, and when they saw it, they, being this crowd who hates Zacchaeus, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So back to the question we started with. Whose house does Jesus go to? He goes to those who joyfully receive him. He doesn't go to the the homes of those who grumble, who judge him, who reject him, who think they don't need him. Jesus goes to the homes of those who joyfully receive him. But what happens when he gets there? That's the the next question. What happens when Jesus comes to your house? Because again, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. He didn't necessarily, I think, plan on Jesus coming to his house that day. He wasn't, I don't think that Zacchaeus woke up that morning and thought, you know, for a long time, I've been looking for a really good excuse to finally give away all my money and stop this really profitable business that I've been doing and, and kind of live an entirely different life. And I just hope that maybe today Jesus or some other kind of rabbi figure comes and gives me a pretext for finally getting around to to doing that. I don't think that's what Zacchaeus woke up thinking that morning. He was curious about who Jesus was. He wanted to see Jesus. But here's the thing. When you encounter the outrageous love and extravagant grace of Jesus— Radical repentance and transformation always come. It's inevitable. Because no one is the same when the king comes over. No one is the same when the king comes over. And so what's interesting here too is so now Luke moves his head in the narrative. We're now at Zacchaeus' house. There's a big feast happening. There's a dinner party. And Jesus doesn't sort of command we, we, like 
Bailey who said that quote, all these things that Zacchaeus has to do, he actually gives space in that culture. He gives space for Zacchaeus to sort of work out the implications of what this radical transforming love means for him in this moment. And so then we get to verses 8 through 10. And this is what happens. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since also he is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, New Testament scholars are quick to point out, it's probably impossible for Zacchaeus to literally do what he has just said he's going to do, to give away half of what he has to the poor and then also have enough money left to pay back everyone he's defrauded four times over. But this, this, is, this is rhetorical exaggeration, and this is how this cultural context works. If Zacchaeus had kind of said literally what he could do, like, I'm going to give uh, a big gift to the poor, and I'm going to try to do my best to pay some people back, no one would have expected anything from him. But in this kind of the village rhetoric of exaggeration, he says, this is, this is what I'm going to do. People are like, whoa, this is a transformation taking place in our midst. This is a truly radical thing that's happening. Again, love, extravagant love, plus extraordinary grace, equal radical repentance. And Zacchaeus's life is transformed. So he goes from, on the one hand, he goes from, from being a tax collector, to now he's a philanthropist. He goes from having his wealth being all about himself now to his wealth being about the good of others. He goes from someone who is called a sinner to now someone who is rescued, someone who is saved. He goes from a place of being utterly lost to being found. And he's, this is what Jesus does. He's welcoming Zacchaeus back into the community just like he did with the blind man. The blind man was on the outskirts of community for a very different reason. The blind man is someone who's oppressed, but Jesus doesn't just welcome the oppressed. He also welcomes and transforms the oppressors also into his new family. He says, the blind man is part of my family, calls me son of David, and this too is a son of Israel. He's part of my family. In fact, he holds up Zacchaeus as, as a picture of this is what I have come to do as king and Messiah, to seek and to save those who are lost. So what happens in our lives when Jesus comes, when the king comes over? Well, the first thing that happens when the king comes over is we reject normal. We reject the normal. What do I mean by that? What I mean by this, that is, is simply this. When Z what Zacchaeus was doing in his tax collection work was industry standard practice. He wasn't doing anything outside of the ordinary. In fact, what he was doing wasn't even illegal. It wasn't right, but it wasn't illegal. It was industry standard practice for his field, for his line of work. This is how you did tax collection work. And so, but that's an important distinction for us as followers of Jesus to make between what is legal and what is right. What is legal in the land is not always what is right in the kingdom. Now, we, we began this morning with an example of that in the issue of, of abortion and the unborn. But what about other, I mean, we, there's lots of examples of things that are legal but aren't necessarily right in the kingdom. 
So you look back at the history of Kansas City 70, 60, 70 years ago, and the practice of redlining, we've talked about this a lot, of, of real estate that, that prohibited certain people from buying homes or getting mortgages in, in, in neighborhoods, particularly people of color. And now those sections of the city have become places of, of concentration, of, of poverty and crime and poor education. We're still dealing with the impact of those, those practices from many years ago. And just imagine, what if, what if 60, 70 years ago there had been more Christians in the banking in real estate industries in Kansas City, who said, we are not, that, was, that wasn't illegal back then. It wasn't, it was industry standard practice what they were doing. It wasn't right, but it wasn't illegal. But what if you would have had more Christians in Kansas City working in banking and finance and real estate who said, no, this is industry standard practice, but we're not going to go along. We're going to do something different. We're going to do what's right. How different our city might even be today. That's just one example of how this happens. Uh, another one, I mean, so when we talk about Christ's community, like your work really matters. Like it really matters, right? Like how you do your work in whatever field that you're in. And I don't know what industry standard practices might be in your work that maybe need to be challenged. But like the work that you do on Monday really affects all the people around you. But it's not just what we do in our work, but also in how we spend our money as well. Oftentimes, how we choose to spend our money has more impact on working for good than, uh, than even sort of government regulations, right? So if you look back in, in uh, the 18, around 1800 in, uh, in Great Britain, as they were working to abolish the slave trade, I mean, certainly Parliament had a piece of that, but one of the biggest things was how people chose to spend their money. This is what the, the BBC says. Listen to this. One of the most successful campaigns against the abolition, for the abolitionist movement was encouraging British people, especially women, not to buy or use goods produced by slaves in the West Indies, particularly sugar. And around 300,000 people boycotted sugar and sales dropped dramatically because of the impact of just how they spent their money or didn't spend their money. It had a massively transforming effect on the British Empire and, and the world. It doesn't always have to come down to the passing of laws or regulation. That's important, but oftentimes more powerful is our individual choices in the midst of that. So even today, I, I read recently a story the Supreme Court is hearing a, a case uh, around cocoa production, right? So 60% of the world's cocoa is produced in two West African countries, and there's been a well-documented uh, history of, of child slaves being used in those plantations. And certainly laws should be passed and, you know, those kinds of things. But what if people around the world said, we're, until this gets fixed, we're not going to buy cocoa products anymore? The impact that, that might have. I mean, it's just examples. But how we can actually reject kind of industry standard practice. Maybe something that's not illegal, but that isn't as good as it could be in the kingdom. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this, that we bring joy to our communities. Because when Jesus comes and begins to transform your life, it never affects just you. When Jesus begins to transform your life, it never affects just you. The joy spills over to everyone that you're in relationship with, your, your, your spouse, your coworkers, your, your kids, your neighbors, whoever is in your life on a regular basis is going to get spilled over. So just, just imagine with me here, right? You picture this guy, right? He's, he owns a company or he's a, he's a boss of an organization, but he's, got, he's just got a terrible temper. 
He's just a jerk all the time. And he's the same way at home. And he just loses his temper, yells at his kids. It's not a great place to work. It's not a great family environment to be in. But then the, this, this guy meets Jesus. And he, and he starts to get this anger under control. He, he starts to become more patient. He starts to become more gentle, more kind. You don't think that workplace is going to be a better place to come on Monday? If you don't have a boss who's screaming and yelling? You don't think that family isn't going to be a place of, of greater love and joy? And dad comes home at the end of the day and he isn't angry all the time? Or, or you can imagine a couple, right? Imagine a couple that, that they always have, have wrestled with, with credit card debt and, and spending more than they make. And, and so they, they always have this, this credit card debt that's hanging out there and it provide, it's always a source of stress and, and tension in their marriage. And, and not only that, because they have this, this debt that they're always trying to keep ahead on or you know, pay off and they, they can't be very generous. They can't give uh, to their church. Or they can't give to organizations in their community who are helping others. And so there's this, this just this utter kind of frustration in that. But then this couple, they, they meet Jesus. And they start to realize, actually, like, everything belongs to God. He, he owns it all. And they start, they go to a budgeting class, and they start to figure out, like, how can we, how can we manage our money better? And they start to pay off debt, and they're able to be generous to their, their local church family. And they start giving to organizations that care for refugees and immigrants in the city. And they, they start giving to, um, you know, organizations that help school kids in that city. Do you see Jesus coming into their lives? Now a church community is more effective. Now neighbors who are vulnerable are better cared for. A marriage is, is actually healed. They're not as much fighting anymore. When Jesus comes into your life, the joy spills over into every aspect. This is why church, why we say at Christ Community that we believe that the local church as God designed it is the hope of the world. Because when Jesus gets into your life, not just on Sunday, but on Monday, man, like the whole community starts to rejoice and be transformed. And then lastly, we'll wrap up with this. When the king comes to your house, you experience salvation. Because friends, Jesus is not looking for good people. He's not looking for people who have it all put together. He's not looking for found people. He is looking for lost people. People who know they don't have it all together. People who are weighed down by guilt and shame and regret. People who want to hide. He's looking for you. He's looking for people who want to hide from Jesus, but also can't help but kind of want to see him as well. And so in those moments when you feel the, the heat of shame, or the sting of regret, or the weight of depression, or the helplessness of hopelessness, seek Jesus. Because it's in those moments that he is most looking for you. And remember, he has been looking for you way longer than you've ever been looking for him. And, and here's the thing. He wants to come to your house. He is not ashamed of you. He is not disappointed in you. He is not angry with you. He's dealt with all of that on the cross. 
Then you understand, he, he's dealt with all that on the cross. He, just like with Zacchaeus, he took the anger, the shame, the disappointment, the, the, the wrath, all that, he took that onto himself. That is not there for you anymore when you come to him in faith. He's not ashamed of you. He's not embarrassed by you. He wants to come to your house. And when he does, there's going to be so much joy that comes. It's going to be hard. Everything in your life is going to change, but there's going to be so much joy that comes. So hurry to him. Hurry to him now. (laughs) Hurry to him again and again and again. Hurry to him forever. He loves you. He wants to be with you way more than you want to be with him. He's coming to your house today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus to seek and save lost people like me who are just hopeless apart from your outrageous love and your extravagant grace. Father, would you do the work transformation in our lives so that joy overflows out of us into every person we interact with. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit is able to make that a reality in our life.